All right, we're going to be turning to Galatians chapter 2 this morning, so make your way uh, to the second chapter of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat pockets in front of you. And uh, if you're a child of technology, you can open up your phone. I'll assume you're looking at the Bible and not at social media. And you can type in Galatians chapter 2. And as we make our way that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatia region. He's not writing to a church singularly, but actually a collection, a group of churches that are located in Asia Minor, in this what is known as modern-day Turkey now. And so he writes this letter to these Galatian churches because a problem has occurred within their church. The problem was one of legalism that had begun to creep in. And what I mean by that is, in particular, there were these uh, false believers that were coming in, and they were promoting what Paul calls another gospel. And this other gospel was one that involved uh, works along with belief in Jesus in order to have salvation. And so they begin to add things to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls this in the previous chapter another gospel, but then he's quick to say it's not another gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And so what Paul was saying is this isn't another good news. In fact, it's bad news. It's the opposite. Because it means that we now have to try and work and strive in order to have salvation. And so Paul is going to spend his entire time, these six chapters, sharing with them that it is by grace through faith that we are actually saved. Nothing more. And a little bit of Bible math I shared with you last week was this, that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That any work that we try to apply as necessary for our salvation is really in vain. Because what we're saying is, uh, his work on the cross was not enough. That somehow I have to have some involvement in this. And so Paul is going to write this letter, and it's all about grace. And we've already started into this. In chapter 1, the first 18 verses, we see Paul declaring grace in his message. It was even grace within his calling. He's actually going to share that inside the second piece of this last week. We see him depicting it in his own life. Paul says, it was by grace that I was even called from my mother's womb. And so his ministry speaks of grace throughout his life, and he shares with us his own personal testimony. And now this week, as we get into chapter two, we're going to see Paul defending the grace that exists within his ministry. And he's going to defend grace both corporately to the church at large. Remember, he's writing to several churches, but then he's also going to defend grace uh, personally. In fact, he's going to have a run-in with the apostle Peter, right up in his grill as he talks about grace in a very personal way. And so, with all that being said, we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1, where it reads, And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And so what Paul is sharing is really part of the story he began last week in chapter 1. It's that after he had received Jesus there on the road to Damascus, he had this amazing conversion where the Lord literally blinded him. He met him there on the road, and he was saved by grace right there in that spot. But he was not initially received by the church. In fact, they were terrified of Saul of Tarsus. They were afraid he was going to drag them out and kill them, and this was nothing more than a trick. And so they led Paul out of Damascus, actually having to lower him down in a basket in the middle of the night so that he wouldn't be killed right there in Damascus. And he ends up in the desert of Arabia where he received what I call his uh, DD, but not his 
doctorate of divinity, but instead his doctorate of the desert. The Apostle Paul spends three years with the risen Jesus Christ, learning all these ways that the Messiah was actually right there in their Old Testament all along. We just missed it. And so the Apostle Paul had Jesus as a personal tutor there in the deserts of Arabia. Now, after he had graduated with his uh, doctorate of the desert, he then proceeded to go uh, back to Jerusalem and share, only he wasn't received again. And so he comes back and spends 11 years in Tarsus in relative uh, anonymity. He was not known by people. He was really sort of obscure where he would have no doubt gone into the trade of tent making. The Apostle Paul had to have a way to pay the bills. And so he was a a tent maker in a seemingly menial job until uh, Barnabas picked up the phone and gave him a call. And so what was happening as Paul was just simply about his business making tents, a great revival was happening at the church in Antioch. And both uh, Greeks or Gentiles and Jews were coming to know the Lord in droves. And as Barnabas is there, he doesn't know what to do with this. He's thinking, "I, I have no idea how to connect with these Greeks. I don't understand their culture. I'm a Levite. You know, I was supposed to be a priest after all. So he didn't understand how to connect and relate with them. But he did remember a guy from Tarsus. And so he's able to reach out and get a hold of the Apostle Paul the exact ministry that God had lined him up for from his mother's womb is what he said in chapter 1. This is a guy that was immersed in Greek culture, but also raised in a Jewish home. He spoke fluent Hebrew as well as uh, fluent Greek. And so he was able to come in and actually relate to these people right off the bat there in Antioch, and their ministry would take off. So I share all that to say, um, do you have peace with where God has you? Because here's Paul, right? I mean, he's had this dramatic, unbelievable calling. And then it took 14 years, 14 years before he was ever able to really step out into the ministry that God actually had in mind for him. And so often we are impatient. Our culture almost demands it. And we will not wait upon the Lord. But here's Paul. No doubt he had his moments, but he had peace with where God had him in that season of his life making tents. And so, do you have peace with where God has you? Now, continuing in verse 2, and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. In verse 3, yet even Titus, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so he's talking now about his run-ins with these uh, Jews that believe that you must follow the Torah, the law of Moses, in order to be saved, along with belief in Jesus. What he's saying is, I went up to appear before the leaders there in Jerusalem, these supposed leaders, and yet we were not persuaded to have even Titus circumcised. Now, circumcision is one of those things that for the Jew meant that you'd accepted the law of Moses. And so what he's saying is for Titus, it was not important for him, being a Greek, raised in this way, to accept Judaism. Why? Because salvation comes through faith in Jesus. He was freed from that bondage is what the Apostle Paul is going to say. And so he wasn't liable or having to uh, administer or adhere, excuse me, is the word I'm looking for, to the laws of Moses. And so he continues in verse 4. 
And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And so now these false brethren are coming into this church gathered in Antioch, and they're coming in to spy this liberty that's being exercised in Christ Jesus. They want to now put bondage on these new believers, these Greeks. They want to actually make salvation a work of the flesh. And this is what salvation by works always does. Any cult that represents salvation through works is really trying to put us into bondage. Now, why would anybody want to go into bondage? Why on earth would anyone actually adhere to any of this stuff? Well, the reason is uh, we actually want to have something to do with our salvation. It appeals to my flesh. That's the reason why works-based salvation is always, there's always a lean into that. I want to have something to do with my salvation. And so it actually appeals to the flesh. Now, verse 5, Paul continues and says, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And so what Paul's saying is, as these false believers, these false brethren came in, we did not tolerate it, not even for a minute. The Apostle Paul was quick to stamp it out. I love this quote that I put up on the screen, if you can read it, but it says, uh, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If you give them a foot, they'll learn to avoid you. This is the Apostle Paul. He's ready to give them the old right foot of fellowship. It's time for you guys to get out of our service. And this is what legalism pressed into a body can do because... Here's the reason why it is so dangerous. It's hypocritical. It's hypocrisy, and Paul's going to address that here in just a few minutes with Peter. But what's the real issue? The underlying issue at hand is one of faith. It's actually a trusting. Do I trust God that my faith is enough? Do I trust him that just by simple faith, this sounds too easy for me, that just by believing, is that enough for salvation? Now, throughout Scripture, what you'll find is that we are referred to in two different ways as a, a body of believers. We're referred to as children of God, but we're also referred to as the bride of Christ. So that leads some to ask, what is the difference? Are we children of God or are we the bride of Christ? Which one is it? And I believe the answer is yes. How do you like that for being definitive? We are both. But as we look at the analogy of us being children, what you know if you have kids is that we love them automatically and, and completely. As soon as they're born, it's like an instantly, we just fall in love with them. We can't even describe it. But what you know if you're married is um, marriage takes work, right? It's effort. There's a desire there to, to it's going to take real effort in order to make this thing happen. Now, it seems like I'm confusing works and the relationship. But I want to be very clear about this. What Jesus views us as is his bride. He is willfully and intentionally going after us because he loves us so very much. And what he is giving us as an example, and I think this is beautiful when you look at it because throughout Scripture, as we're referred to as his children, it's all leading up to eternity. But anytime the eternal is mentioned, we are always mentioned as his bride. So as we grow up as children, what he desires ultimately is for us to have a bride and groom relationship, one that is willingly and intentionally in love with one another, that wants to be together, that wants to be around each other, 
right? For the kids, we can't wait for them to get off so that we can be with one another, so we can live out life like that. That's the relationship design that God has for us for all of eternity. And it was what he had in mind for Adam too, by the way. As you look all the way back at the beginning of your Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, it was not good for man to be alone. And so what did God do? He, out of Adam's side, we've got this poor translation in the Hebrew where it, it comes out rib, that from Adam's rib, woman was taken. But what it really means is God performed surgery. He went along Adam's side, not from his head or from his hands or from his feet, but from his side, and he created woman, carved out from his side to be alongside him, to have this perfect relationship. This is what God had in mind. And so what we see is what the first Adam, though, failed completely to do is the last Adam will fulfill perfectly and completely. Adam, because of his own sin nature, he failed. And yet here's Jesus Christ, the last Adam, fully and completely fulfilling this. When you look at uh, John chapter 19, verse 34, as he's hanging there on the cross, what do the Roman soldiers do? But they pierce his side. They cut his side, making a way for his bride to actually have eternal life, salvation. It's the second surgery to happen so that we can have access because of his perfect work, not because of our works. And so this is how much he loves us. Now, verse 6 as we continue. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. And so what Paul is trying to do is make it clear that God shows no partiality. That he does not look upon one famous person versus just a regular person and think they're any better than another. God goes out of his way in Scripture to make it clear he does not show favoritism. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. I'm meeting with these guys. Everybody seemed like they were something. They didn't make any difference to me. I spoke to them like I would anybody else. And in verse 7, he continues and says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for in verse 8, he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, or speaking of Jewish believers, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. And in verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And so here's Paul saying, I met with them in Jerusalem. These pillars of the church. I met with James and with Cephas or Peter, that's his birth name, and with John the apostle. As I met them there, we came to an agreement that they were called to a different flock than what I was called to, and yet we're all serving the same Jesus. This is most likely that Jerusalem council where they they get direction on their ministry. And what James says is, look, uh, you don't need to follow the laws of the Torah. All you need to do is to remember the poor. That's essentially what he said. He gave them a few other things. Don't uh, eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat things strangled before blood. And don't commit sexual immorality, the basics. But then he goes on to say, and remember the poor, which I think is interesting because uh, do you know who the poor were in this story? The Jews. 
<laughs> so what James is really saying is, hey, uh, as you go out and minister, don't forget about us. Throw us a few bucks. So you got to love the humanity that still exists in the Bible. And so he shares this with them. And what we see is really this idea that Jesus is the same, and yet we are all very different people. And this can be one of those things as we go through this, especially in Western culture, we wonder, why are there so many different churches, right? Why are there so many different gatherings? Well, the reality is because we all like things a little bit differently. This is actually God's grace by allowing us to have different fellowships, but the same Jesus. And what you see is if you look at the writings even of these men, you have four very different writers in our New Testament, four very different uh, people that almost have church types that go along with them. And, and what I mean by that is for the Apostle Peter, if you read his letters, they're very neat and orderly. He's very clear to show the almost liturgical nature of his writings. And what we find is there are many churches that are very liturgical in that way. They uh, burn an, an incense and wear a certain clothes and wear robes. And for lots of people, uh, because I don't dress like that, it's a turnoff, right? But God's grace says that there are folks that have the opportunity to worship in that way. He gives them very liturgical, orderly services in that manner because people learn in that way. And then you have uh, James. He's sort of a type of the ecumenical church. And if you read through James's epistle, we're going to get the chance to study through it here in just a few months. But what you'll find is James is all about action. It is time to go get to work. In fact, uh, James 1.27 says that this is pure and undefiled religion that we should go take care of orphans and widows. In other words, that's James' way of saying it's time to get your hands a little dirty. Stop standing in the corner singing kumbaya to each other. Let's go get to work. And so what you'll find is there are many churches where that's their DNA. That is their style. They are all about going out and getting to work and getting things done. Now, then for uh, John, if you look at John the Apostle or John the Revelator, he is a very mystical guy. If you've ever read any of John's writings, sometimes they're almost difficult to understand. Uh, he talks in circles sometimes. Uh, I love it in 1 John where he says, I don't give you an old commandment but a new commandment that you should love one another. And then two verses later he says, I give you an old commandment, not a new commandment, that you should love one another. Like, what is it, John? Is that a new commandment, an old commandment? I don't know. I think you said the same thing. So I scratch my head, but John is the apostle of love and of worship and of mysticism and prophecies. And so we have this beautiful relationship that John has. And what we find is it often connects to the charismatic church, where for many people, their idea of worship is, look, if four songs are great, I need 40 songs in order for me to worship. I need some full-out worship going on up in here. And so the Lord, by his grace, he gives those type of ministries. Now then finally, you've got the Apostle Paul, right? The evangelist, the teacher of teachers. And Paul's way of doing things was to teach the whole counsel of God. That's what he says in Acts. Paul was so determined to teach as we studied through Acts, he taught so long he even put somebody to sleep up in a window. The guy fell out and died, and the Lord had to raise him up from the dead. Thankfully, we're not going to go that long today. Not exactly. But what you'll find is there are people that learn in that way. Paul was also all about spiritual gifts, but at the same time making sure they were done decently and in order. And so Paul gives us a lot of direction and instruction. And there are churches that lean that direction. Now I share all this to say probably the healthiest bodies have some of each of these <laughs> included. But for each one, there is going to be a lean to one side or the other. 
But the most important thing, and don't miss this, is that Jesus is at the center. Regardless of the worship, it has to be all about Jesus. He is the head of the body. If you're in a a worship service or in a ministry at all, and it is not all about him, I'm afraid that is not a true worship service. It is false because he is the head regardless. All eyes on King Jesus. Now, as we continue, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For in verse 12, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And so as all this was happening there in Antioch, and this great revival was taking place, Peter is sent by the church to go check things out. Go check out what's happening there, Cephas. And when he shows up, he sees people coming to know the Lord. There's tremendous worship. They're learning about Jesus. It's awesome. And they're also eating bacon. And so Peter's like, you know what is awesome? Bacon. He begins to eat bacon sandwiches just like everybody else. He's like, I want the BLT without the L and without the T, which is the best kind of sandwich, by the way. I tell my boys, the only thing better than bacon is more bacon, right? That's how Peter's feeling. He, he is letting it rip, letting it all hang out until his Jewish buddies show up. And as soon as they show up, he cuts off all bacon sandwiches. He quits even eating and partaking with these Gentiles because he doesn't want to be associated with them. You see, uh, culturally speaking, and really this is this way in most parts of the world, uh, to eat with someone, to dine with them, is some of the most intimate relationships you can have with another person. And if you think about it, the reason behind it in large part is because you're consuming and digesting the same thing they are. It's a very personal relationship that's happening as you dine and eat together. And so for a Jew to eat with a Gentile would be completely off limits. It wouldn't be allowed whatsoever. And this is the spot that Peter is in. And so immediately he quits eating with these guys and he goes off to just sit with his Jewish buddies, ignoring everybody else. Now verse four, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And verse 14 But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And so here's Paul. He is not afraid to get right up in Peter's face, which if you just look at church history, is kind of entertaining because Peter was known as the giant. He was a big guy, not afraid to smack somebody right in the face. And now you've got Paul, who historically is known as a little guy, kind of a short guy, hunched over a little bit, got glasses on, no doubt. And he is getting right up in Peter's business with his finger poked in his chest saying, you're not doing right. And the reason for this is because it was hypocritical. Hypocrisy cannot be tolerated. And when you look at uh, your life, I'm going to paint with a broad brush right now. But for most of you, if you've been hurt by church, it's almost nine times out of ten been because of some kind of a hypocrisy that existed. Some kind of teaching that sounded great on Sunday and yet it wasn't followed Saturday or throughout the week. A church that was told to go out and love and yet we did not love very well. 
And so over and over again, the grace that was not given is what hurts us. And so it is hypocritical, and this is what Paul is all upset and up in arms about. He gets right up in Peter's grill. And verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, that's sarcasm, by the way, from Paul. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul uses the word justified multiple times to drive it home. Uh, justification by faith, that word simply means just as if I'd never sinned. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying here is, you have now advocated that people would be reborn through what? Through religious practice? I mean, look at our whole history is what he's saying. We were never able to achieve what God had determined for us or our fathers or our father's fathers through any kind of religious practice. Now, as we study through this, here is what we often will say to ourselves. But if I do these things, won't Jesus bless me? If I do these things, won't God love me? If I do this, won't he be happy with me? And the answer is, he already loved you anyway. He loved you long before you were able to do anything for him. And the reality, whether you want to see it this way or not, is that God intends to bless you even when you're not doing right, even when you're not doing well. His intention as a father is to actually bless you because of his grace, because of God's riches at Christ's expense. He intends, he sets out to bless you. So an Old Testament story of this is an example. It's back in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. I know you guys love the book of Numbers. By the way, it's not all just Numbers. There's lots of great stories. And one of my favorite is the story of Balaam. If you've ever read this or had this as a children's church message, Balaam is the story of the talking donkey. And the background is there's this guy, Balak. He's the king of the Moabites. And he wants to curse the children of Israel because they've moved into his land. He sees them as a threat. And so he calls up this guy, Balaam, who's some kind of a pseudo-prophet, but yet he worships pagan gods, but he's got a connection with Yahweh. Very weird guy. And he calls Balaam in to put a curse on the children of Israel. Now, the famous story here is Balaam actually is confronted on the road to go curse them uh, as an angel of the Lord stops in front of his donkey, and Balaam gets knocked off, and he begins to curse at his donkey, and the donkey actually talks back to Balaam. So any story with a talking donkey, I'm all in. Now, as I share that, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers through all the Old Testament is a guy named J. Vernon McGee. He's been gone a couple decades, but he used to do a radio show called The Bible Bus. And J. Vernon was from down in Texas, so he had this long drawl. And he'd always say, now, friends... He'd speak like that. And he, in sharing the story of Balaam, he said, now, friends, he would read out of the old King James, by the way, before you get upset with this next part. He'd say, now, friends, in Balaam's day, it was rare that an ass would speak. But in our day, it's rare that one shuts up. <laughs> so that's a, a side note with J. Vernon McGee. And yet, here we have Balaam, and he's sent by Balak, paid for money to curse the nation of Israel. And as he's standing, looking down on the nation, he proceeds to attempt to curse God's children. 
And what happens is they're blessed. The enemy desires to curse them, and yet God is intent on blessing them. He tries again to curse them, and what God does is bless them. He goes at it again one more time, and by this point, Balak is getting upset with Balaam because they continually are more and more blessed every time he's trying to pronounce a curse on them. He goes to curse them again, and God blesses them again. You understand that's his relationship with us. He intends to take what the enemy desires to do and curse and damn us, and he intends to bless us. Now, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. Was the nation of Israel perfect in this spot? Absolutely not. Most of the time, they were a hot mess. But God's intention was to bless them. Now, if you read on in the story, what happens is Balaam gets a bright idea. Uh, He has Balak bring some of the beautiful Moabite women down and has them do a little uh, dancey dance in front of the nation of Israel to wash up and bathe in front of them. And what the nation is does is they actually go towards the Moabite women. He knew the weakness of these men. But what in reality was taking place is these men made a decision to be cursed. They actually brought on the curse or the consequence themselves. Their own decisions are what ultimately led to their demise. And the same is true with us. That God intends to bless us, but what so often gets us tripped up is us. It's our own decision-making. Now, the beautiful part about this is God can still make something out of it. His sovereignty and his will, he can still make up for all of our mistakes and our fumbles. We will still have consequences, no doubt, to deal with because of our decisions, and yet God can still make something out of it. He is intent on blessing us. Now, continuing in verse 17, but if we While we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. So what he's saying there is, if we, being justified by Christ, still struggle with sin, does that mean Jesus is a minister of sin? Of course not. That's foolishness. He's working things out in our lives. And what Jesus would say in Mark 7 is it's not what man takes on the inside that defiles him. It's what comes out of the mouth. It's it's our own wickedness that's actually coming out as Jesus is processing new life into our old nature. And so is Jesus a sinner? By no means is what the apostle Paul would say. In verse 18, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. What he's saying there is if I go back to that religious rule-making nature and I not only build that up for myself but also build that up for others, then I'm a fool. I'm messing this thing up when I want to go back in and impose rules and regulations on others and me, I'm getting the whole thing all wrong. Be very careful about doing that. Now, for us, we often have this idea that In order to come to Christ, i got to get it cleaned up a little bit, right? Like, in order for me to just come in and step foot into church, I'm going to have to dress a little better. I'm going to have to clean it up a little. Otherwise, the walls might fall down on me, all the things I've done. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. What Romans 5.8 says is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At our absolute worst, 
he gave his absolute best for each and every one of us. That's the reality. This is not about us getting cleaned up or what we can do for him. And when we try to impose that on, what we're saying is, as Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, this finished work, that's like us saying, are you sure, Lord? Are you sure it's finished? Because I feel like I got something to give. By no means can we do that. Now what the law wants to say is do. Go out and do. But what grace says is it's done. It's complete. The work is finished. It's wrapped up. Now with all this, the Apostle Paul says in verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. What the Apostle Paul says is, I quit. I realized I could not keep the law. My sin nature prohibited it. And so, as a result, I quit. I stopped. I gave it all to Jesus. I told him, I I can't possibly do this on my own. And so, he gave up. And this much is true for us, too, that, that no doubt there are things that have been imposed upon us that we must do these things in order to be a good Christian. No doubt, these things like, and this is going to be one of the dumber things that I say for a while, um, no doubt we impose things on ourselves like, I must read my Bible. I must attend church. I must pray. For Jesus to be happy with me, I must give to him. And the reality is, that's a lie from the pit of hell. He loved you just the same whether you did those things or not. These are not must-dos in the eyes of the Lord. And if you don't want to do them anymore, quit it. Just stop. Because whatever we are trying to do and trying to strive for in our flesh, we're going to eventually wear out on. Now, hang with me on that for just a second. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the law was perfect in what God intended for it to do, and that is to show that we can't keep it. (laughs) We can't keep it. We don't have the ability in our own flesh in order to keep the law. But what Paul is saying is that Christ in me can. That the the external pressures of fulfilling the law actually died with Jesus. What Paul is saying is, I put all that to death at the cross. Buried it all. And now the reality is, he is living in me. And now I can actually accomplish all these things that I couldn't do in my flesh. I can now accomplish in the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit living inside of me allows me to be able to go and do the law. Christ in me is the hope of glory, is what Paul says in Colossians 1.27. It's, it's Jesus living in us that allows us to be able to do this and to tie this together with the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah 31, a famous section in the Old Testament. But in verse 33, he speaks to the children of Israel, but this applies to us as well, where he says, but this is the covenant that I will make with you, house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For a group of people whose heart had become stone, their very law was written on stone. What God says is, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to write the law on your hearts and in your minds, and you're going to be able to do it with me living in and through you. Now, this is not to say that you and I are perfect from this point on. What this is saying is, Jesus is. He is perfect in every way. Now, as we wrap up in verse 21, Paul finishes by saying, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What Paul's writing there is that if we could do it on our own, if we had the ability to do this on our own, why in the world did Jesus have to suffer? Why did he have to give his life? Why did he have to be beaten and tortured on your and my behalf if we could do it on our own? Because if we could do it, the reality is he died completely in vain. But the truth is, we cannot. And for each and every one of us, I believe we know it. Deep down inside, we don't always like to admit it. We don't want to broadcast it out there in parties and amongst our friends. But the reality is, and the further we go with Christ, it becomes more and more evident. We cannot do it on our own. And so here's King Jesus living in and through each and every one of us. Now, a couple things to finish with as we wrap up that I wanted to share. And that is this. First of all, with Jesus living in you, do you realize you're just as likely to not sin as you are to sin? I think we have this negative mindset, like I am predisposed to sin, like I'm just at any minute going to fumble and mess this whole thing up. But do you realize with Christ living in you, you're just as likely to not sin as you are to sin. It's all a part of your new nature. We are not predestined to mess this thing up. But in our new nature, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verse 5 or chapter 5, verse 17. This one's highlighter worthy if you don't already have it highlighted. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what Paul's saying is you're now a new creation. In Christ Jesus, you, you and your new nature are not predisposed to sin like what you used to be. And I think we get hung up on our addictions and our struggles and our problems, and I think this is just a part of me. This is just who I am. I'm going to have to live like this for the rest of my days. But the reality is, if Jesus can't fix your deal, then he's not the Christ. He's not the true and risen Lord. He can absolutely 100% address and fix our issues. My new nature determines that. Now, one of the hang-ups we have in this new nature is, what if he asked me to give some stuff up that I like an awful lot? I'm really comfortable with these things. I like this part of me. Or it's been so much a part of my life that it's become a part of me. I can't separate myself from that. I would encourage you that in your new nature, you will very soon look forward to getting rid of those old things. It will actually not be a burden whatsoever as he works in your life, especially in the area of, this is the big F word in Christianity, forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is one of those areas where it not only applies to others, forgiving those who have hurt me, who have let me down, who have disappointed me physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It is a difficult thing to contend with. But in our new nature, I am apt. In fact, I am encouraged. I live forgiveness. But the most difficult person to forgive in that relationship, by the way, at least I have found, is me. I'm the one that often brings up all the old stuff. I'm the one that brings up all my failings and all the ways that I didn't get it right today. I'm the one that looks at my past and wants to say, yeah, but you're not good enough because fill in the blank. My new nature, though, this is why that's an important verse to highlight in 2 Corinthians. It says, I am now a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old man has passed away. I don't have to be chained down in that bondage anymore because he is willing to set me free. And I think that's important for us to know because God hates sin. I say that, and that word hate makes us recoil a little bit. Like, God hates stuff. Yeah, he hates sin, but here's the thing. He hates sin for a very particular reason. He doesn't hate sin because it's bad. He hates sin because it's bad for us. He hates what it does in our life. He hates the way it wrecks us. He hates the way it makes us feel when we're caught in that sin-shame cycle where we have sin that permeates into our life. I don't want to do that, and yet I fall into that again, and then I'm ashamed of myself, and I have to come crawling back to him, and I'm so beat down, and then he forgives me, and then I fall back into it again. He hates the cycle. He wants to be the one that breaks it. He wants us to have complete and total freedom from it. That's what forgiveness actually looks like. And so this is a part of our new nature. I am apt not to sin. The second thing I wanted to point out is that law, the law says, do this and you'll live. But liberty, this word liberty that Paul uses 11 times in Galatians says, live this and you'll do. That we have this whole thing reversed, that if I just do all these things, I'll be able to live, and he'll be happy with me, and pleased with me, and I can live with him forever. But his grace and his liberty says, no, if you live these things out, if you invite me in, if you allow me to do what I already want to do in your life, you'll be able to do all that stuff. All those old things, all those chains, they'll all be broken, and you'll have liberty in Christ Jesus. Now, as we grow in liberty, I wanted to share this with you in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. The Apostle Paul says this about living outside of the law or living in liberty. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not all things build up. And what we in this new life have the tendency to do is allow some of those old things back in. Those old things that we now have liberty to go and do, but they're not profitable. They're not edifying. They don't build up. There's a reason there's no satisfaction and no fulfillment in them because they're not profitable. That's what Paul is saying. And so his warning shot out there is that within your liberty, make sure it doesn't end you back up in Egypt again. Remember, the land of Egypt was a land of bondage. 
And so we can get carried away with our liberty we now have in Christ Jesus and actually end back up in the very bondage that he freed us from in the first place. And so it's a a warning shot to be careful with our liberties. But understanding that as we have liberty, as we can now live this and do, we can now live a get-to Christianity. So all those things a few minutes ago where I said, look, here's the truth about living in a law or living outside of the law and living in liberty. You don't have to read your Bible for Jesus to love you. You don't have to attend church. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do any of these things. But the reality is we now get to. You get to. And as he changes things for you from the inside out, what you'll find is you will deeply desire to do those things. It will become a joy to dig into the Word of God. I cannot wait to see what Jesus has for me today. I'm excited about meeting with my brothers and sisters in church today. I cannot wait to see what wonderful thing Christ has for me that he wants to reveal to me in prayer. I'm now excited about these things. That's the difference between living under the law versus living a life of liberty. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you that we get to live no longer under the bondage of the law, no longer held down, pressed down, restricted. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get the opportunity to do things like we're going to see in just a few minutes with baptism, Lord, that we get the opportunity to identify with you. Lord, we just praise you for that. Father, would you please continue to work these things out in our life that so many times, especially as it's been pressed into us from a life of growing up in church, we feel like we have to perform for you, for you to love us and perform for you, for you to be happy with us. Lord, help us to see that you loved us while we were in the middle of our sin and our worst. You were right there alongside us, Father. Man, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the faith that you actually give us, that that we can turn in turn exercise and have faith in you. And then you use that faith to somehow save us, Lord. It still mesmerizes me to this day. No wonder the angels look in and they're, they're amazed. I am too, but I'm thankful, Lord. Father, if there are any that do not know you in that way, help them to be able to just right where they're at, pray that prayer. Lord, I want to be saved. I want you in my life. I want to be a new creation, a new creature, no longer held down by the weight of sin and shame and regret and unforgiveness. Lord, thank you for forgiving me, even when I couldn't forgive myself. Man, you are unbelievable. So thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have you all uh, sing this last song while Brad and I go get changed for just a minute, and then we'll have a baptism here in just a few moments. Would you please stand? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder 
consider all the worlds thy hands have made I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder thy power throughout the universe display then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art when Christ shall come You shout of acclamation to take me home. What joy shall fill my heart when I shall bow in humble makes his way down here. This is Brad Smith, and I've uh, gotten to know him over these last uh, several months, and uh, he and his wife Maria, just a wonderful couple, and you know, Brad's story, I think probably a lot of us can connect with uh, where he received Christ as a young man and uh, baptized at an early age, uh, 10, I believe, initially, and yet what happens so many times is life, right? <laughs> life happens, 
we tend to go and drift this way and that. And uh, for him, his desire was to uh, identify with Christ Jesus again. And, and I want to encourage you, if this has ever been put on your heart, it is a wonderful way to identify with Christ Jesus. The uh, act of sal- or the act of baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. This man right here is already secured for all of eternity. He is, he is uh, going to be walking the streets of gold, and yet he wants to identify himself with Jesus as his Savior. And so we get the opportunity to participate and to do that as a family together. And so, with all that said, you ready? All right. You want to take your nose like that, like that. All right. Bradley Kent Smith, it is my honor to have the opportunity to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. New life. Love you, buddy. So, praise the Lord. Oh, we got to get a picture. Now we're all wet. There we go. Thank you guys so much. Uh, as we sing the last song, please hang around and uh, tell Brad how excited you are for him. God bless you guys. my knees again God I'm begging please again I need you oh I need you walking down the stairs of road water for my thirsty soul I need you oh I need you your forgiveness is like sweet sweet Honey on my lips, like the sound of symphony in my ears. It's like holy water on my skin. Dead man walking, slave to sin. Wanna know about being born again? I need you, oh God, I need you. Take me to the riverside. Take me unbaptized. I need you. Oh, God, I need you. Oh, your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. Like the sound of symphony in my ears. Like holy water on my skin I don't want to abuse your grace God I need it every day it's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. 
any of you that the Lord has put that on your heart, it is never a bad time to re-identify or to identify with our risen Savior. And so I want to just encourage you guys in that. I pray that you have a wonderful week. God bless you all.